Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you planned today. We had a good one yesterday, but it was marred by an unforgivable error on my part. Oh, what was that? So I want to apologize to all the William Carlos Williams stands. Oh, there. they're going to be coming after you. They did. What did you do? They I still did. don't remember. In one of the segments, I mentioned that Martin Heidegger and William Carlos Williams were, Martin Heidegger was a card-carrying Nazi and William Carlos Williams was a fascist. I was thinking of Ezra Pound. William, oh! William Carlos Williams, not a fascist. Uh-oh. I'm Fine. so sorry. One, huma one humanities professor was like, I really don't think this is true, and I've looked everywhere because I'm nervous I'm going to have to pull him from the curriculum. You just think... I was like, no, my point is you don't have to pull him from the curriculum just because he's a fascist. Well, but it turns out he's not a fascist. Just like a lefty accusing everyone, all the everyone, poets everyone, of being, <laughs> being Nazis. Everyone of being, so William Carlos Williams... Not a fascist, right. actually like a New Deal Democrat. We are, we are uncanceling William Carlos yeah, you're, Williams. Well, welcome back. Welcome and recanceling Ezra Pound. Okay. Yeah, strip okay. those chapbooks off the shelf. You shelves. know, I was a literature major in college, so I should have known that and corrected you. Uh, but I didn't. You can't know every poet's yeah. politics. College was a long time ago. And it was a long time ago. Anyway, Rebecca Azar and Emily Jashinsky are in for panel, and they will discuss Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border announcement. Plus, journalist Manny Morota joins us from Ukraine to share updates on what's happening on the ground there. But first, a new study out of Israel found that the fourth dose of the Pfizer vaccine improves protection against infection, but appears to be short-lived. The study found that the effectiveness against COVID wanes in the fourth week after the fourth dose and was lower when compared to protection after the third dose of the vaccine. Israel was the first country to administer a fourth dose, and the study included more than a million vaccinated people from January 10th to March 2nd. So, I mean, it's, you know, kind of what we were mm -hmm. suspecting at this point. It's, uh, it's some temporary protection. It's, it's I mean, it is, it is what it is. <laughs> right. We, you can't count on the vaccine for some kind of perfect protection from infection. You still get... Uh, extremely good protection, lasting protection from severe disease and death. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's as good as it's going to get. Right. And this is a good public health situation to be in, to, to give people this information. And then if you're 83 years old, you're like, I get four weeks of solid extra protection and then it wanes, give it to me. Sure. You're 43 years old, you're like, I I'm good. Yeah, I right. think, think, I'm, think I'm fine. I think I'm one and done. Or yeah, one I'm three and, and done. done. Yeah, I think three I'm three and, and done. I think yeah. three and done. So, yeah, so this, this is the type of information that, that might have staved off some of the more extreme tribalism in the early stages where it was, uh, you know, where on the, on the one hand, people were saying at the very beginning, like, you know, this is, this is going to end it. Like, take the, take the jab. It's going to end it. Other people were saying, you know, it, it, it wanes immediately. And it's basically useless. It doesn't do anything to mm -hmm. slow the spread. And that wasn't true either. Uh, so this, yeah, at, at this point, as the effectiveness of the vaccine continues to, you know, just marginally decrease and the, and the risk of the lethality, the, of, the lethality the of the disease decreasing, also de decreasing it, you get to a point where like it's, it's probably it's only going to be in particular demographics yeah. and immu immunocompromised positions that you decide that, the, the, that it's worth doing. I never ended up getting a booster. I'm still theoretically willing to get one, but mm -hmm. I, I haven't You quite... had COVID right around that time. I right? had it in uh, July, so I was waiting until it'd be six months after that. It's now been six months, but I'm not, I'm not clear 
maybe I should be clear, maybe tweet at me if, if, if we know right. this, but I'm not clear if, if, if I'm just getting a booster of the, the, the vaccine. How, how much is that tailored to whatever new variant right. we're experiencing? Not, it's, it really isn't. It's tailored to what they call wild. Right. Which, I, although I had we Delta, don't know if it's wild. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, and I, I mean, I think my, whatever, my natural immunity uh, plus vaccination held up pretty well when everyone around me, including everyone in my life, got Omicron and I didn't. So I don't know. I feel good. I feel good, good to go. Right. And the CDC is now talking openly about yeah. the immunity that comes from infection. Now, that's never the desired way yeah. to get immunity because the risks of getting COVID are sig- right. significant. But once you but have it, you once have you've it. had it and once you've gotten over it, uh, also, you know, you don't know if 10 right. years from now, like, it triggers some type of weird long thing. Right. But as of now, right, it, the CDC is saying that you have significant protection, both vaccinated and infected afterwards. Yeah. yeah, good enough. Meanwhile, Dr. Fauci says he predicts an uptick in cases and said a more serious surge could arrive in the fall. Fauci also told Bloomberg that the U.S. will run out of tests, monoclonal antibody treatments, antiviral drugs, and research capability if Congress doesn't sign off on more funding. Earlier this week, Fauci said masks may come back on indoors if there is a rise in cases. Let's watch that. The CDC has been very clear, as you've indicated, that in fact, if things turn around and you have a rather substantial uptick in cases that is associated with an increase in hospitalizations, the CDC might turn around that recommendation and say, we've got to go back to indoor masks. This messaging comes as members of the Biden administration and press corps are being hit with a fresh wave of COVID infections, but political reports that the White House Correspondents' Dinner will still go on. Sadly, the dinner has been canceled the last two years due to COVID, but planners say it's definitely happening April 30th. Uh, that was a tradition we did not need to come back. This kind of like incestuous party, this celebrity mingling prom for DC to, journalist people. To close the loop, since it was it was always a celebrity fest. It was also the place. Uh, it was of it was the source of Trump's Joker origin story. It's it's where he decided he was going to run for president because Obama was making so much fun of him from the podium. Shouldn't they to bring it full circle have Trump? speak at the White House correspondence. He can it. be the comedian. <laughs> and he, like, he, he's funny. He's, he's actually funny. That'd be great. We wouldn't be able to show any of it because of you don't YouTube. Know, what's but, so uh, funny about him, you don't always know if he's trying to be funny. <laughs> and you think sometimes he is. And then other times you're like, I'm not sure that he was trying to be funny there, but yeah. that was actually really funny. Yeah. But of course they're going to go forward with this, even as everyone's getting COVID, even if they reimpose lockdowns on everyone. This will be like, no, we get to have our, our little party. Will Fauci be there? Probably massless, probably. Got you. Uh, I, I can't. We're gonna. No, we should not bring back mass. Like, what? Do, what is that doing? What is that going to accomplish? You can't tell me when 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 Omicron came through, everyone I knew got it. Right. Everyone in DC got it. It didn't matter if you were a constant masker. Didn't matter if you if you refused to wear them. I, okay, and I'm not. I'm sure masks help. Right, it mattered a, tiny a little bit, bit but you can't even. And th- like this is a mainstream opinion. Dr. Lena Wen has said this on TV that the cloth masks most people wear are are little better than nothing at this point. It's just it's just a highly, highly, highly contagious. It's a disease that keeps getting more contagious, less lethal. Thank goodness. Yeah. I don't. I don't. The masks are a feel good gesture for some people. People who want to feel good, they don't make me feel good. They make a lot of us very angry, but it's. 
I don't know why we'd bring them back. And if you go back and look at the credit on that video, it says RNC research. Right. So it's very clear how the Republicans feel like a surge that is accompanied by Fauci calling for masks in the fall would play out politically. Yes. Yeah, so like, can you schedule this for the month before the election, <laughs> yes. please? Yes. Right, right as mail ballots are <laughs> dropping. We'd love to have Fauci out there telling everybody to get, not get on their masks. So, that they, it's, you know, so they're the ones that clip that, not DNC research. DNC no. research was not, say, was not thinking that this was useful to them. And, you know, take that for what it's worth. That yeah. These, these, these are people who are paid very highly to pull the country and keep their finger on the pulse of what's going to move people which way. And they, they saw that and they're like, clip that, share it. That's a good point. Reuters reported yesterday that all 26 million people in Shanghai are now on COVID lockdown with no end date given. There's been reports of people running out of food and other necessities as they're forced to stay home. And while some residents sang off their balconies and yelled for food and supplies, a drone appeared to tell them, Please comply with COVID restrictions. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do not open the windows or sing. That's not a message you want to get from an authoritarian government. Control your soul's desire for freedom. Do we have that? Is I don't. Have I seen the video. I, yeah, I did see the video. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, we don't have a. Yeah, that's pure dystopia. That, that helps my soul uh, recoil in fear so it no longer is desiring anything. Yeah. So all the, all the you know, China, pro-China people out there, I, I would not want China to be the global world leader. Like, it's the most, they're still mm -hmm. pursuing COVID zero. I don't know what they're, what they're thinking, but their, their government is still pursuing COVID zero and might pursue it. They could pursue it another year. They could, be, they could still be doing this for years. Right. And they're, they're going to get cases whenever they decide to stop. But uh, it's crazy and, there are, and bad. And I, I posted some other uh, videos that have come out of China uh, from around the country that are just, I, I don't know if you've seen many, many of these, because not a whole lot of images come out, but mm -hmm. some people are, are being able to post footage and get it up. Everybody having to line up uh, at the end of every day to get there, to get tested so that their QR code stays green, because if it doesn't stay green... You can't work, can't get on public transportation, and you may go to a camp, some type of a camp. Like, you could actually be arrested. And so every single night, you've got then thousands and thousands of people rushing to get these tests, uh, and it, it's, it's just the most dystopian-looking situation. Uh, you know, I, it feels like they should uh, applaud themselves for staving off the wave until it's Omicron, because if you have to get either Alpha, Delta, or Omicron, you'd rather have mm -hmm. Omicron. Right. You know, they, they've had time now to build up field hospital capacity. This stuff is right. insane. And their only cost was totally giving up <laughs> all freedoms, <laughs> uh, ceding all control and authority to the central government. Right. So the, for the whole lockdown. The one that lied to yeah. us, uh, misled us about the origins of this pandemic. Right. Do, and would do, it's so like, do lockdowns sure. work? Well, they can stave right. it off apparently if you strip every single ounce of humanity you stop breathing people. you're not going to get covid that's, said that many times it's the that's ultimate, true uh, that's true because it goes in through the respiratory right. system and so if you don't have a functioning respiratory right. system you can you know, do i things, didn't go to medical school but that's my you can uh, do things so extreme <laughs> that they will prevent you from getting covid yes. they will just have other you, effects you that are be, you might be dead like death yeah not good we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next stay with us
Robbie, what's on your radar? Oh, you like this one, Ryan. <laughs> so Stand Together is a charitable organization founded by Charles Koch that gives money to libertarian groups and causes. Works to advance classically liberal ideas on a variety of issues, school choice, criminal justice reform, regulation, foreign policy, to name just a few. So Stand Together works with right-leaning organizations on some of these issues, left-leaning organizations on other issues, and also with organizations that don't neatly fit the left-right paradigm. Now, full disclosure, the Reason Foundation, which publishes Reason Magazine, where I also work, is a recipient of support from Stand Together. So that's established. You, you take that for, for what it's worth. Now, unfortunately, many progressive journalists and even some populist conservatives, they view everything connected to the Koch brothers as nefarious by default. In, in their zeal to denounce Koch's influence on American politics, they end up attacking policies that they should otherwise support. And I think this is a good case of that. So take a look at this bizarre and misleading exclusive report on Stand Together from Judd Legum, who is a progressive journalist, writes the newsletter Popular Information. Now, Legum accuses Stand Together of supporting, quote, a partial victory for Russia in Ukraine and wanting the U.S. to drop virtually all Russian sanctions. Quote, in an internal email obtained exclusively by popular information, Stand Together, the influential nonprofit group run by right-wing billionaire Charles Koch, argues that the United States should seek to deliver a partial victory to Russia in Ukraine, writes Legum. The email was sent to Stand Together staff by Dan Caldwell, the group's vice president of foreign policy, on March 16th. The subject line was an update on Ukraine. So this is an article by Legum that's trying to paint the Koch network as sort of like sympathetic kind of to Putin or not as on board with helping Ukraine as the rest of us are supposed to be. But nowhere in his article does Legum share the email in its entirety. Instead, he selectively quotes from it, leaving out important clarifying context. He also takes great pains to portray skepticism of the long-term effectiveness of economic sanctions as some kind of kooky fringe belief. Legum describes Caldwell's email as offering a, quote, boilerplate denunciation of Russian President Vladimir Putin that, quote, quickly pivots to a broad rebuke of international efforts to sanction the Russian government, as if the sentiment expressed is brief or insincere. So I'm going to read to you the relevant section of the email. I'm going to end up reading the entire email, but so this is, this is how it starts. Quote, I wanted to take a moment to better connect you to our sense of things regarding the war in Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is immoral, unjustified, and should be immediately halted. In addition, the regime of Vladimir Putin is authoritarian and has inhibited the Russian people from enjoying the benefits of a free and open society. Throughout our decades-long history, our community has consist consistently stood against unjust wars, advocated for peaceful relations between nations. So while we support the Ukrainian people, we also must do everything we can to prevent escalation and reduce the threat of nuclear conflict. Understandably, the invasion of Ukraine and the suffering inflicted on its people by the Putin regime has evoked a strong response among us all. This has contributed to demands for, from some for the United States to take a more aggressive posture against Russia, including calls for actions that would entail direct military strikes against Russian forces, such as the imposition of a NATO no-fly zone over Ukraine. However, it is not in America's or anyone's interest for the war to escalate into a larger conflict between a nuclear-armed Russia and the United States, especially not the Ukrainians, who will bear the brunt of a more violent and widespread conflict. This is not to say the United States should do nothing. End quote. So that's how the, how the email begins. Now, I'm not sure why Legum reads this as a boilerplate denunciation followed by a quick pivot. I read it as a sober, well-considered. In truth, I can't find anything in it that I disagree with. Perhaps Legum would say that's because I too am compromised by Coke dollars. 
In the next half of the statement, Caldwell expresses support for sanctions against specific Russian leaders and says that broader sanctions should, quote, never be taken off the table. But he perceptively questions whether broad-based, long-running sanctions have generally succeeded in the past, provides various examples of regimes that withstood sanctioning. I'm continuing to read from the email. Quote, the United States should support diplomatic efforts to help end the war and outright victory by either Russia or Ukraine is increasingly unlikely and a diplomatic resolution is the path that best limits the bloodshed and minimizes the risk that the current war could escalate into a larger conflict. On the question of sanctions, aggressive and targeted sanctions against Russian leaders are warranted. Additionally, sanctions are a legitimate tool of American statecraft and should never be taken off the table. However, overly broad sanctions rarely work as intended and often strengthen the authoritarian regimes that are being targeted while increasing the suffering of ordinary people, something you already see taking place in Russia. Additional examples of this dynamic in action include Iraq in the 1990s, Venezuela, Iran, and Afghanistan, all countries where people had no ability to hold their rulers accountable for the impact of the sanctions precisely because they were authoritarian regimes." End quote. That's the rest of the email. Now, most irresponsibly, Legum highlights the following line. An outright victory by either Russia or Ukraine is increasingly unlikely, and a diplomatic resolution is the path that best limits the bloodshed. So he describes this as stand together advocating for the U.S. to, quote, seek to deliver Russia a partial victory. Caldwell clearly does not wish for Russia to achieve victory, partial or otherwise. He is merely acknowledging that any peace will likely involve both Russia and Ukraine getting some things that they want perfectly reasonable to concede that in order to end all the death and destruction, Putin will have to emerge from the conflict as something short of a complete and total loser, as much as we might like it to be otherwise. Legum quotes two foreign policy experts, Brian Catalyst and Daniel Fried, who think the current sanctions should remain in place and are working to reduce Putin's resources for further aggression. They are certainly entitled to that opinion. There is little reason to, to doubt that the sanctions are making things harder in Russia, including for ordinary Russians. But it is not crazy to wonder whether the sanctions will meaningfully prevent Putin from continuing the Ukraine war or whether the amount of suffering we are dispensing to the Russian people is ultimately counterproductive or even immoral. Legum's article has drawn well-deserved criticism from Michael Cohn, a fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation, and Emma Ashford, who works for the Atlantic Council. Both described Legum's piece as a hatchet job, and I agree with them. In response, Legum criticized Cohen and Ashford on grounds that their organizations also received Koch funding. But Legum's pet expert, Fried, is also affiliated with the Koch-funded Atlantic Council. So the insinuation that a Koch affiliation means we should automatically reject an expert's criticism backfires in all directions here. The overarching point of Leckham's article is to cast aspersions on Coke Industries' decision to continue operating two glass manufacturing facilities within Russia. Coke Industries, for what it's worth, maintains that it will not, quote, walk away from our employees there or hand over these manufacturing facilities to the Russian government so it can operate them and benefit from them. So, but it's absurd, in my view, to characterize Stand Together's skepticism of sanctions as anything other than a sincere belief held by some libertarians, non-interventionists, and even a great many progressives. Indeed, Representative Rokana, one of the most left-leaning members of the House, has taken an identical position. Progressive representatives Ilhan Omar and Cory Bush voted against the U.S. ban on Russian oil imports. Uh, Ilhan Omar was, was here, sitting next to me, when she, when she talked about this issue. Uh, so Leg Legum did not respond, by the way, to a request from comment uh, from, from me. Uh, we'll see how he responds to this. I suspect he will end up denouncing me also as a shill for the Cokes. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, And you called out the one person that he quoted. The other one, Brian Katulis, uh, has been heavily subsidized by the UAE throughout his mm -hmm. throughout his. Uh, 
his think tank career. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Uh, and when, the, when Cap finally stopped taking UAE money, he went to a separate organization that is getting Cap money. Yeah. I mean, is getting UAE money, and now Cap collaborates with that one, which is a nice little workaround for them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the, the idea that anybody in this uh, story is pure is, is a farce. I, I bet that, that if we could get Judd on here, and he's been on the show before, that if you could take the coax out of this question, I bet you, I bet he would agree with almost everything that the <laughs> right. That was so. That was what was so weird about it because what they're saying, like this whole email I read, it, and he doesn't link to the whole email in his in his piece. But if you read it, I, I I don't disagree with anything in it. I don't think you would disagree in anything in it. I don't think Kim would disagree with anything in it. I, I think like it's a pretty like he's benign for, statement. Right. He's pro sanctions on. You know, right. Russian leaders, right. people close to Putin, you know, and efforts like that that are trying to, like, punish the, the regime. He's, you know, Charles Koch saying that they're against the, or whoever wrote the right. thing, uh, you know, that they're against the war, but they're acknowledging that there's not likely to be a complete military victory <laughs> right. by either side, which, given the fact that Crimea is currently and has been occupied by Russia for, like, seven years... Like, even if, even if they only hold on to Crimea, it would make that claim true. And, was, and so even if the only compromise that Ukraine made out of this was to say, okay, you know what, we're going to recognize de jure control of Crimea by Russia to end this war, that would be a, quote, partial victory for Russia. Right. And I think the whole world should be like, great, Let, we, ended the, we ended this war and that's all that happened. Yeah. So where, where, where exactly the line gets drawn... So, but I think it, it is, you know, the Cokes have been some, you know, the particular, I'm in Judd's precise generation, basically. And, you know, the Cokes have been our boogeymen for our whole lives. And so if we see the Cokes somewhere, uh, we have a lot of skepticism about what the position <laughs> is. I have kind of been immunized to that a little bit because of you know, all of my interest in drug policy mm -hmm. and, and finding them for so many years kind of on the right side of a lot of drug policy issues, including up to and including racial justice issues on mm -hmm. the on the on the drug uh, policy front. And so I'm more open to being like, OK, the Cokes are the worst or the Coke because his brother's dead. Uh, however, let's see what they're saying, because maybe it's maybe it's correct. And the point about broader sanctions only strengthening a regime and hurting people, you know, is is held up by history and and also they didn't even get into the point about what it's going to do to you know, wheat prices, bread prices, mm -hmm. all the suffering that it's going to produce outside of Russia, which is going to both strengthen some authoritarians and topple some governments and create unrest all over the world. So. And maybe we're supposed to do those sanctions anyway. And honestly, in their email, they didn't even really say, Judd kind of accused them of right. saying, no, we, we support right. the immediate like, end of these. They're like, they're like this. Eh, I don't, yeah. but are they going to work? Are they causing more damage? Are they, like, right. those are the right questions to be asking. Right. I have those questions, too. So, so does a, Judd, I bet. Yeah, I, 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 bet, I, I bet, bet he does. does. Yeah. So. Well, I'm looking forward to your radar coming up next, Ryan. So stay tuned for that. Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, now that the Biden administration and Iran are moving toward the final stages of a nuclear deal, with analysts saying it's somewhere between 95 and 99 percent done, the hawkish pro-Israel lobby is kicking its opposition into high gear. 
Israel hawks oppose a nuclear deal because it represents a thawing of relations between Iran and the United States, and therefore a shifting balance of power in the region. As of now, Israel and its Gulf state allies, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, make up a lobbying juggernaut in Washington, D.C., while Iran is banned by sanctions from doing any lobbying at all. Israel wants to keep the balance of power the way it is. The Biden administration, meanwhile, wants to re-implement the nuclear deal that was struck in 2015 between the Obama administration and Iran over the strenuous objections of Israel. Trump, of course, walked away from the deal because he had a visceral hostility to anything that had Obama's name on it, from Obamacare to this. Now, yesterday, a small group of Democrats got together to undermine the Biden administration's efforts to finalize the deal, organized by the most hawkish pro-Israel Democrat in Congress, Josh Gottheimer. Now, that was to be expected. But Gottheimer also won some unexpected allies. In March, a letter he sent to the White House signed by just a handful of Democrats included the signature of Michigan centrist Democrat Haley Stevens. Haley Stevens doesn't have a history of being critical of Israel, but has by no means been one of its most outspoken advocates in Congress. Now, she was joined yesterday by Congresswoman Chantel Brown. Now, what do both of these members of Congress have in common besides their sudden interest in undermining the Biden administration's foreign policy efforts? Both of them are facing primary challenges this cycle from progressive Democrats, and both of them have the public support of the super PAC called Democratic Majority for Israel. Now, in 2020, DMFI got behind Brown in her primary fight against progressive Nina Turner and spent more than $2 million to fund a come-from-behind win. The irony is that the ads barely mentioned Israel or Mideast policy. Instead, the group targeted Turner for not being a loyal enough Democrat, a charge all the more absurd now that Brown is using her position to undermine Biden. Here are some of the ads. The country is more polarized than ever, and Nina Turner is no help. Unified Democrats? Turner said no. Support Clinton over Trump? Not Nina Turner. Help Biden defeat Trump? Turner refused. Instead, Turner said voting for Biden was like eating <laughs> Turner even voted no on the entire Democratic platform, rejecting Biden's plan to build on Obamacare. Nina Turner for Congress? No thanks. The MFI PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. While Nina Turner divides, Chantel Brown delivers. Turner voted against the whole Democratic platform, then compared voting for Joe Biden to eating half a bowl of, oh my. Chantel Brown will work to pass the Biden-Harris agenda and deliver real progress for Ohio. Currently, the Biden-Harris agenda includes as a centerpiece locking down the Iran deal. You'd think if hewing to the Democratic agenda is what this was really about, Brown would be supporting the Biden administration, not bucking it. Now, in the case of Haley Stevens, the Times of Israel instantly made the connection between her signature on the letter threatening to vote the deal down and the super PAC backing she's getting from DMFI, explaining to its readers that she is, quote, a Michigan Democrat who is garnering centrist pro-Israel support in her primary battle against Representative Andy Levin. Now, neither Brown nor Stevens are Jewish, though Andy Levin is, and he's also a self-described Zionist. But what matters here are two things to DMFI. One, He's been mildly critical of Israel, and mild criticism of Israel is way too much, especially from somebody like Levin, who can't be smeared as an anti-Semite. Ironically, that means Levin is a bigger target for some Israeli hawk groups, not despite being Jewish, but precisely because he is Jewish. Now, the second thing going on here is that Stevens has a generally pro-business political ideology where Levin is one of the strongest supporters of labor and workers in the House. He's known in Congress as like basically the union guy. 
And while DMFI is certainly interested in lobbying on issues affecting Israel, as the name suggests, it's funded by wealthy donors who also have an agenda that is deeply hostile to progressive economic policies. So it's a win-win for DMFI and its donors. Now, after I posted about this yesterday, some supporters of Chantel Brown argued that her comments didn't rule out eventually supporting the deal, so it shouldn't be said that she's undermining Biden. That just simply misunderstands how Congress works. This is an organized group putting pressure against Biden's deal at the very last moment. The exact words a lawmaker uses on the press release are not what's important. The way we can prove that is in how it was rolled out. Gottheimer was very clear the group is, quote, raising concerns about a, quote, looming deal. And APAC, the leading hawkish lobby, publicly thanked Brown and Stevens for standing with them. Not long after thanking Brown, APAC's next tweet against the Iran deal included one of the most preposterous arguments I've ever heard on Capitol Hill about anything. So they argued that Russia is bad and therefore can't be trusted to store Iran's enriched nuclear stockpile. Except, of course, Russia already has immense amounts of enriched uranium, and they are part of the deal precisely because they also don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Like, what if Russia got its hands on nuclear material? That would be, <laughs> that would be terrible. I wish, I wish they did not get their hands on nuclear material. I would Me like too. to live in the world where they do not have nuclear weapons. But uh, roll, roll the clock back to the 1950. That would be, uh, that would be nice. Maybe late 40s. I don't, I don't know. Like, yeah. They've, 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 they've been a nuclear power for ever, quite some time. This is just wild yeah. like speculation. Do you think um, what was, would have been the Truman administration had any conversations as like Russia was about to get the bomb and China was going to get the bomb, being like, are we, should we like nuke everyone? Just finish them. <laughs> Anyone trying just. to pursue nuclear research? Well, you know, I, I, don't, I think they were caught off guard. Yeah. Um, because the, the Soviets had spies everywhere and, and made it so quickly. There's that famous... Uh, moment where uh, Truman, you know, tells Stalin uh, that they have made this bomb, and Truman later is like, it "Really didn't get much reaction from him." And he knew, <laughs> like he, he already knew. So we have this bomb, right? And so, but this is an this is an interesting story about how how power works in in Washington, and in, and in fact, uh, Ilhan Omar got dragged pretty relentlessly for saying that. Uh, mo campaign money can influence people's posture mm -hmm. on some of these issues. But if a PAC spends $2 million and funds your come-from-behind win, then when you're in Congress and that, that advocacy organization has a particular view on an issue, that's going to influence you. Well, she it, got dragged for the way she said it, right? Gotta, gotta say it better, I guess. Yeah. Right. That was, and the, she that was the all about the Benjamin. Yeah, and, and, comment, and right? she apologized for yeah. uh, making people feel like she was not being sensitive. And, and she wasn't. She was just right. you know, glib. Glib. She was glib about it. Uh, but $2 million is a lot of money in a, in a primary campaign. Mm -hmm. And so now DMFI PAC is in a lot of these other races. Stevens and Levin are both incumbents, but they've been districted together. And so now all of a sudden, Stevens is one of these kind of leading voices, uh, you know, raising questions, raising concerns about the Iran deal, which is like, what? It's, uh, and that ad was interesting. Is this the kind of thing that works on Democrats? Like this 
this is a disloyal Democrat. Because on the Republican side, you have to say, this is a rhino. Not that uh, uh, you don't want them loyal to the party. Right. They, the party is the sellout. The yes. candidate is the real genuine thing. Absolutely. It, it, so it funny. is what works. And, it's, and, and the squad members do it, too. So the way that, in my opinion, uh, that Cory Bush beat Lacey Clay, was there was a, a, an outside anti-monopoly pack that pumped a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of ads in. And what they did is they, Lacey Clay had sided with Wall Street against a rule that Obama's Labor Department was trying to put into effect. And so they didn't say he necessarily was a, you know, sold out to Wall Street. What they said is that Lacey Clay was undermining Obama. And so, <laughs> so, it's basically, so vote for Cory Bush because Lacey Clay is undermining Obama. Not undermining workers, not undermining Wall you know, Those things were mentioned right. in the ad, but the, the kill shot was Lacey Clay stood against Barack Obama. Can't have Can, that. You can't have, and, and the Iran deal is Barack Obama's. <laughs> right. And, also, and Biden also wants it. So it may be cynical, but actually is, it could be a, a devastating hit because progressives are the ones that are constantly getting knocked for not being loyal enough to the party. And in Democratic primaries, that, that matters. It's, a very, it's, it's much it's more of a team dynamic. blue dynamic than on the Republican side. Yeah. Well, you have to be loyal to, to Trump. But you don't, the whole, like, didn't vote right with the party. Well, the party's a bunch of, you know, sellout right. rhinos who, the establishment, right. going to fight the establishment. Right. So what they'd have to find are things that, where people disagreed with Trump. Right. Even if th it was a rational thing to do. They're, well, they're doing that right now in the, uh, that Ohio uh, primary with Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're trying to out MAGA each other, which is kind of... It's not, it's pitiful to watch, but, uh, but J.D. Vance was for a while, and he's the author of Hillbilly Elegy, right. a book I, I quite enjoyed, and I enjoyed a lot of his commentary until he went, until he realized that he his criticisms of Trump made him unelectable, so he, told, he did a complete 180, but, uh, but uh, Mandel can just keep pointing to you know, all these in interviews he gave in the run-up to the 2016 election where he criticized Trump. And uh, it's, it's likely going to win the primary yes, on solely that basis. Yes. So, Real shame. Real shame. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Anyway, our rising panel joins us next. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said yesterday that Texas will start using charter buses to ship immigrants from the border to Washington, D.C. in response to the Biden administration lifting Title 42. Here's Abbott making the announcement. It's providing charter buses to send these illegal immigrants who have been dropped off by the Biden administration to Washington, D.C. We are sending them to the United States Capitol where the Biden administration will be able to more immediately address the needs of the people that they are allowing to come across our border. Political journalist Rebecca Azor joins us to discuss. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. And so Ted Cruz uh, is up with a post saying excellent ideas, Greg Abbott, and he says he's going to file federal legislation that will also send them to Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, Palo Alto, Greenwich, Scarsdale, New York, Newport, Rhode Island, and Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And so there's going to be charter buses that are going all over the country if Ted Cruz gets his way. Greg Abbott has since clarified these are completely voluntary. So in other words free rides for people to get out of Texas and go to these towns. Uh, what, is, what are they thinking here? Like, when I first heard it, I'm like, is this a joke? But, you know, anything right now, I just feel like, you know, 
is it's just ridiculous how these Texas leaders are would use utilize money, utilize funds that can go somewhere else for, you know, getting all of these buses to get these immigrants out of Texas. So I think the message is really clear. No immigrants here. That's what it's giving. And so um, to hear them uh, put so much work into uh, this, this to me, it's a joke. Uh, to not having immigrants come to Texas because they, they don't want them there and sending them other places, saying that they're going to send them to Washington, D.C. Um, I think that it's 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 still stupid. It's still America. They'll still be here as you guys, you know, as, as these leaders are upset. They don't want immigrants, but yet they're going to ship them over to Washington, D.C. They think that they're making themselves clear. They're they're proving a point. But it, it just seems as a joke to me when that money could be well spent for something else that Texas yeah, I mean, needs. Right. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it's... I guess it makes sense if you presume that immigrants are all like violent criminal or, or like are disease or something, then you want to like physically move them elsewhere. But these are just people. <laughs> the overwhelming majority are no threat to anyone. Um, I mean, in, in, in fact, the immigrant population has been like you, you, all of the studies show less dangerous than the native population of the right, United States. Right. Native born like population said, of the United States. They want it to look like, you know, they're just these people are dangerous. They're they, they're disease ridden. They're they are bringing those. This is what they're trying to. This is the rhetoric that they're trying to put out there. This is the idea that they want to have. But there's not there's no clear reason as no clear reason that makes sense as to why these leaders are doing that, except for it's just we don't want immigrants in Texas. Yeah. And, and Rebecca, I, I made this. Uh, comment on Twitter, and it made the uh, con- my conservative followers so livid. And if you want a taste of their response, you can probably just scroll down to the comment section on this piece. Do you have a lot of conservative followers, Ryan? Oh, I, I hate followers, <laughs> I think. They, they have yeah. a ball in the comment section. They have they, a ball. <laughs> they do. And so they can have a ball with this one. I, I pointed out to them that we are in the midst of a historic labor shortage that is driving inflation. That is hurting, That's what I was going to say. Put them to work. Hurting Have them the build working, houses. Hurting working class, lower class, middle class people all over the country. Because, yes, wages are up thanks to the labor shortage, but inflation is up by more. So it's eating away at the gains. And so you need to grow the economy so that you can keep pace and, get, and keep inflation down. You, in other words, you need more workers in this country. So now they're going to send bus Buses full of workers to Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, they will be not all too happy to welcome them. Be like, great, we have right. we have help wanted yeah. signs everywhere. Grab a wrench. <laughs> yeah, like there's there is a lot of work to do in this country. So, Re- Rebecca, what is it about the kind of conservative mind that can't connect the help wanted signs with the people who want to give help? The the, the fact that and, we need and workers these- and the people who want to do the work. Yeah. And these people who are coming over here, they're coming for better lives. I'm a product of immigrants myself. Um, I'm first generation. And my parents, you know, come from uh, Haiti, Um, you know, and so... I know the first thing that they they're coming for a better life first and then they're they're willing to do everything to stand in line to um you know to be the best that they can be to come for a better life they're going to work they're going to do whatever they can um and and 
I don't think that the conservatives are going are, are looking at it the bigger picture here. And you know, if there is help, they're going to come here and do whatever they can to stay here. If that means putting putting them to work or having to work or whatever whatever needs to be done, these immigrants, uh, these asylum seekers, they are going to make sure they do that. They're going to make sure they uh, um, cross every T, dot every I, because they don't want any issues and they want to they want to work. But conservatives aren't going to look at those views. They're going to start an issue about nothing. It's just they don't want immigrants here. They don't want asylum seekers here. They don't. And we know that with the whole thing, they're going to yell that they're stealing jobs, right? We, we've seen that argument. Oh, they're taking away our jobs. and But nobody wants to work because they're turning on these people, not only conservatives, but these people are just turning on their cameras and doing podcasts with no with nonsense when they should be out here getting jobs but or, or working. But here we see so many are being pushed away. So many asylum seekers, so many immigrants are being pushed away with no real reason except for, I think it's just one of those things that we've seen with conservative views is just build that wall. We don't want them at the border. Keep them away. Um, they're dangerous. That's the narrative that they want to continue to push out. And so. Well, Fox reporter Bill Malugan has been at the border in Texas and filmed this video yesterday of a migrant who had just been released from federal custody. He's showing the phone that he was given from ICE and was told to check in every Wednesday with the agency using the phone while on the way to Miami. Uh, Bill also reported that the uh, migrants are asked to turn themselves into ICE in a city of their choice. However, there's no way to stop them, stop the phones from being tossed. I guess. Uh, so during, during the White House briefing yesterday, Peter Ducey asked Jen Psaki about the phones and their function. Let's watch this. Thank you, Jen. First, on immigration, our team in Texas is uh, saying that you guys are starting to give smartphones to border crossers, hoping that they'll use the phones to check in or uh, to be tracked. I, which part of that is supposed to deter people from crossing illegally into the states? Well, I, I think you of all people, since you've asked me a range of questions on this topic over time, would recognize that we need to take steps to ensure that we know where individuals are and we can track in, and we can check in with them. The alternatives to detention program is just what we utilize as three unique forms of technology to monitor participants enrolled in the program. Telephonic. This is one of them, which is uses a participant's voice to create a biometric voice print during the enrollment process. And when the participant has a check-in call, their voice is compared to the voice print. Smart Link, which is another option, enables participant monitoring via smartphone or tablet using facial matching technology to establish identity. And Global Positioning System monitoring is of a participant's location and movement history using satellite technology through an ankle bracelet. This is all part of our effort as individuals come into uh, the United States and individuals who are entering who, who will proceed to immigration proceedings to monitor and track where they are. With the telephonic, though, any concern by folks around here that these migrants will take the phones and just toss them? And then Do you have a record of people throwing phones away? I'm just asking if that's a concern. <laughs> well, that, that seems weird. like a cosmically stupid idea. Well, so, but here's the thing. A lot of these uh, mi migrants want to check in. Like everybody yeah. says, follow the rules, you know, do, do the process. Yeah. This is the process. Yeah. You come to the border, you yeah. present your asylum application. Uh, you then are pre presented with a, a hearing date and you go through the process. So how do we keep yeah. up with you? Well, here's a phone, here's a GPS. Here's a... So that is the process. So most of, most of the migrants are going to go through with this because they want the, the legal paperwork. It's, it's only a tiny yeah. handful that are just going to say, you know what, I'd rather just completely live in the shadows forever. But Re Rebecca, um, what's, what's, what's your response to uh, Ducey's concern there? Which last, and last point, 
the, the kind of anti-authoritarian, paranoid right normally would hear that list of things and, and react like a libertarian, like Robbie, and be like, this is dystopian stuff. What's all this surveillance right. and tracking? Instead, they're like, I'm reacting shouldn't like that. you do better surveillance and tracking? So any, anyway, Well, right. I wasn't, I, I wasn't asking for better surveillance and tracking. Right. No, no. This seems pointless. Right. So yeah. go ahead, Rebecca. I, Sorry. Yeah. So no, no problem. I think that, you know, uh, as I said before, you know, they're going to want, like you said, they're going to want to check in. They want to make sure they get those papers, they get closer to those papers. Uh, and, and as we look at um, so many of these, uh, the history of these immigrants, um, and I've actually sat locally here in Georgia and spoke with uh, leaders locally here uh, who are politicians, people who are running, and I've asked them, uh, where, where is immigration on your list? And what are you doing to help prepare immigrants or asylum seekers to, you know, move into the area and assimilate and try their best to do what they can uh, to check in. And they were telling me it's really not even something that they've thought about. Um, and they've, you know, and I've had to have those conversations of telling them immigrants want to stay here. They want to follow the rules. I, I know this. I see this. I have family members who, who have done this, my, uh, my siblings who have done this, they want to make sure that they get into no trouble. So the phones being something to be able to be tracked and, 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 and them checking in, they're going to make sure they do that. The, I mean, that's a. I would say it's a stupid question. Even when she was breaking it down to him, all of those term, those terms, all those things, it, it's throwing everybody for a loop. Just say what you need to say. But you know, if they're gonna, what if they just toss them? What happens then? Is he trying to, you know, insinuate that they're gonna become dangerous? That they're, you know, it's just no. They're gonna really do their best to do what they can to stay here. Um, I know that Title 42 is coming to an end, and she, uh, you know, and. I guess that they're worried that so many immigrants are just going to come here and they're just going to be wild and free. I mean, you know, I know it's land of the free, but the, they're going to come and they're going to be structured. This is how um, usually immigrants uh, are. They're going to come here and they're going to be structured until they get their papers. Right. Well, Rebecca, I'm glad your uh, parents got here. I'm glad you're here. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Ukraine's foreign minister told reporters in Brussels today that in order to continue to stave off Russia's invasion, his country has just one request of NATO, more arms. Just yesterday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken shared that the Biden administration would send another $100 million worth of anti-armored Javelin missiles to Ukraine. The total contributions of the United States since the start of the invasion now total at least $1.7 billion. In addition to the javelins, yesterday the White House announced a new round of sanctions levied at the Kremlin, including ones targeting President Vladimir Putin's adult children. Administration officials justified the decision by saying they believe Putin may be hiding his assets with his daughters. Independent journalist Manny Morota joins us now from Pittsburgh and not Ukraine, despite what we said at the top of the show. Manny, welcome back to Rising. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So what is your uh, understanding of, of kind of the situation on, on the ground right now? How are things how are things going? Well, I remain in contact uh, with many people I met in Ukraine. I understand that right now uh, the situation is somewhat reversing. They're calling it maybe the miracle on the Dnieper right now uh, in reference to the miracle on the Bastula that happened in 1920 in that they're reversing the tides of war against Russia at the moment. Um, the offensives in the north have gone quite well. Uh, Kiev uh, has broken out of encirclement, sort of, and Ukrainian forces are now in control fully over Kiev and its suburbs for the most part. 
Um, this does not leave Ukraine out of danger, of course. Uh, Russian forces are still very active in the Donbass um, and in the eastern part of Ukraine, but at the very least, they're making substantial and measurable progress in the north, and that's very encouraging to all the Ukrainians on the ground. What do what are the Ukrainians that you're talking to make of uh, the argument that you hear from uh, some on the Russian side that say, well, actually, this whole entire you know, uh, slaughter and like invasion of the of the Kyiv area was actually a feint to try to distract Ukraine from defending the east and the east and the south. How do, how do they feel like they're going to be able to handle the next phase of this operation, quote unquote operation? Right. Well, I believe that um, they're going to try and focus all their efforts on the east at this point. I don't believe that Kyiv is in any danger anymore. Um, but that is just something that I've heard from my contacts on the ground there. Uh, the Russians will continue fighting in the east because there is a Russian-speaking uh, ethnic uh, majority there, um, and uh, they're going to tr- keep trying and capturing uh, to capture those eastern areas, the Luhansk and the Donetsk oblasts that they have tried to capture before and that they've tried to hold on to. And so, expect the war, the next phase of the war, to continue to be attritional in the east uh, and all the efforts to be focused there. But I think it's safe to say that for now. Kiev and even areas like Zaporizhia are out of uh, danger at this moment. And when you talk to your contacts in Ukraine, are you hearing the sentiment that, you know, um, you know it's time for, uh, for a diplomatic solution, even if that involves, you know, a loss of territory, for instance, perhaps the Donbass, or are they heartened by the, you know, the kind of quasi-victory or, or perception that they've pushed uh, the Russian forces back, and it's a, no, we're going to keep the country entirely intact and continue this war if that's what has to happen. Well, exhausted by the war that has taken place so far, my contacts in Ukraine maintain overwhelming optimism and confidence in full Ukrainian victory and full Ukrainian control over uh, these areas that have been disputed. Uh, many of them are beginning to come back from the west and go back east again uh, mm. to move back into their homes in Kiev and other areas in the east. And they feel confident that Ukrainian military forces, especially with the aid of NATO weapons, will be able to push the Russians out of those eastern areas and take control over them once again. So we're looking at full victory here and confidence in restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty over all regions of Ukraine. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki defended the administration's weapons exchange in Eastern Europe as purely defensive. Let's watch that. This administration has sent everything from medical supplies to laser-guided uh, rockets to the Ukrainians right now. While this administration is making them more lethal, is the thought that we are bolstering their defensive capabilities, or is the administration confident that we are bolstering their offensive capability to, in fact, you know, expel Russia from their borders? Well, their country is being invaded. so. It's all defensive. They're defending their sovereign country and the territorial integrity of Ukraine using these weapon systems that the Department of Defense has long categorized as defensive systems. You know, I, I often criticize the White House for splitting hairs o- over terminology, but that actually feels reasonable to me that if Russian forces are on Ukrainian territory, then anything is defensive at that point. What, what's, what's your take on, on that, that spin from the White House? Yes, it's absolutely reasonable. What uh, Pisaki said is correct, that any military action that takes place on Ukrainian uh, soil is by nature defensive. 
the only situation in which military analysts feel that it would be offensive is if uh, Ukrainian tanks, for example, roll into Russia, roll into Belgorod, or some people are even saying a place like Kursk. Um, that's not going to happen. Uh, the Ukrainians have made it very clear that they have no intention of breaching Russian territory. Uh, you will not see Ukrainian tanks in Moscow next year. But you have a, a war that is purely defensive on the part of Ukraine, where all military action is taking place on sovereign Ukrainian so, uh, soil. So what Pisaki said and how she qualified this war is completely correct. It is a defensive conflict. They are defending their land at this moment. President Biden named the discovery of, quote, major war crimes and more specifically the execution of civilians around Kiev when describing his administration's rationale for new rounds of sanctions. This comes just as the New York Times verified new footage showing Ukrainian soldiers summarily executed at least four captured Russian soldiers. So, look, I mean, there are clearly, you know, a, a war is all, war is itself an atrocity. Atrocities are absolutely being committed uh, by Russians. I, I think there are certainly there are examples of atrocities on the other side as well, which is not to kind of both sides this conflict because, you know, one side is invading the other. But, uh, but you know, what... What is the the sentiment you're hearing about uh, from the Ukrainians about you know just Putin? Because we think it, it, like to you know to bring this to a peaceful resolution, it you know might be the case that Putin has to come away from this you know feeling not like totally a total loser or something, or that he's going to face regime change at home. That if that is you know, he would actually continue. He, if he feels like he needs to win, then he's going to keep fighting. But do, do the Ukrainian people you talk to see that dilemma, or are they? One could understand them feeling very, very justifiably vengeful, uh, but and you know, not wanting that to be the result, even if it does prolong the war. Right. Uh, my Ukrainian contacts definitely do feel a sense of vengeance and anger about this. They're in shock about it. The words that I'm hearing from multiple people constantly is never forgive. Um, and a lot of them are characterizing the whole Russian people uh, as responsible for this these atrocities that we're seeing in places like Bukha, which is a suburb of Kiev in which over 300 civilians were killed. Um, and so that's what leads to the things that we see, such as the New York Times uh, tweet that uh, Ukrainian soldiers are killing Russian soldiers. There's a sense of vengeance and anger. Um, I think that they understand that Putin wants to walk away from this uh, feeling as if he has won something. However, at this point, they're not ready to forgive Putin, especially, uh, but the Russian army and in some places, the Russian people uh, for what has been done here. It has just shocked and horrified the entire world. Um, and the only way that this can be uh, prevented in the future is if the, pe the perpetrators are brought to substantial uh, war crimes tribunals at some point in the near future. And so is it, is it your sense that the kind of Ukrainian public at large, when they, when they see evidence of Ukrainian atrocities being committed against Russian soldiers, that there's actually a kind of a shrug or a, you know what, you know, they, they deserved it. You know, they, they came in and they slaughtered people in Bukha or they, you know, they did X. And so this is payback. And I'm wondering if, you're, if we're seeing, if we're like halfway into a, a spiral that is going to uh, quickly become just incredibly personal, like you said, civilian against civilian, like Ukrainians blaming Russian civilians, Russians saying that all Ukrainians are Nazis. This is a very dangerous and touchy subject to discuss 
But once again, what I'm hearing from my contacts are phrases such as never forgive and all Russians are beasts in this situation. And I, un I understand where that comes from. I understand that sentiment, given what we have seen of the atrocities committed by Russian soldiers in the East. But yes, it is somewhat of a dangerous and slippery slope into further atrocities. But war is never uh, an attractive prospect. It's never, um, it's never clean. It's never friendly uh, entirely. And so we have to understand that these things will continue happening and it's horrifying. But um, as long as we continue documenting them, collecting evidence and bringing those responsible to justice, that is what will be important in the future. And the Ukrainian civilians, I hope, will come to understand uh, and accept uh, that not all Russian civilians played a role in this uh, atrocity that we've seen. Yeah. Mm. Two inflamed publics feeling you know, righteous rage at each it's other. Horrible situation. That's how blood feuds Tinderbox. start. That's yeah. How... yeah. Well, Manny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. And we'll have more rising right after this. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has tested positive for COVID. Her deputy chief of staff is out with a statement saying, after testing negative this week, Speaker Pelosi received a positive test result for COVID-19 and is currently asymptomatic. The speaker is fully vaccinated and boosted and is thankful for the robust protection the vaccine has provided. The speaker will quarantine consistent with CDC guidance and encourages everyone to get vaccinated, boosted and test regularly. It's going around Washington. Uh, I'm surprised. Valerie, Bi Valerie Biden. I don't know if Valerie is actually in Washington, but it's going around mm. kind of Washington circles. Go ahead, Kim. Mm -hmm. I, oh, I didn't know that it was still around. I mean, I thought that COVID had come and gone uh, this wave anyway, and that we were waiting for it to come back maybe in the fall. I mean, Saki got hit with it. Like two, recently, two, I thought two, that was a two, while ago. Weeks, like three weeks ago, I, I lose track of time. But it, it, it is it is hitting a number of members of Congress and staff and others. It's specifically hitting some yeah political people. Um, and obviously, obviously the big wave with Omicron in December, I, I, right. it's, it's amazing that anyone can st could have not got, like right. everyone got, every single person got it. Right. But I guess some, some people who some missed people out it. on that one, Mariel Bowser got it. Um, some people who missed out on that wave, I guess, are now enjoying the fun. Well, there's, yeah, because now there's an even more um, transmissible strain that's out there. It's the cousin the BA2, and I, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, and I think there's even another cousin also that's also starting to circulate around. So um, I guess, the, and the cousin actually started waving through Europe. So I, I, so I guess it makes sense that now it's hit the East Coast. I wasn't really following it as much anymore, but I know that it had gone through Europe. And even as it was waving through Europe and all of these countries were having mm -hmm. massive surges, like Denmark has had a, was having another surge and Germany's having a big surge. They're actually still in a surge right now. Um, France was having a surge. They were still dropping their mandates and dropping all of their, you know, like France said, okay, we're not doing the vaccine passport thing anymore. Um, so a lot of these countries were dropping that even as this wave was going through because they found that this new strain is even more mild than Omicron. So it's like, you know, extra mild, which is maybe right. also why Nancy Pelosi um, isn't feeling any effects. Although I would be cautious on that because in my experience with the many people I know who've had COVID, you know, a lot of people didn't feel much for the first few days, five right. days even. And then suddenly, right, it hit, especially like day eight, kind of like right. suddenly they get hit with a Mack truck. So, But with 
but with um, that, I think that was true, more true for the older strains, right? Is that still true? With, I, th I think yeah. it was true more for Delta, which is why I'm yeah. really suspicious when they say that Omicron was the, the main variant circulating around the U.S. in December. I think that's true in some areas. I think we have evidence of that when they actually sequence the virus. But uh, I, a lot of people I know that were getting hit in the Midwest and in the, you know, all around uh, they were they were having what looked like Delta right. symptoms. Yeah, Delta not hadn't Omicron vanished. symptoms. Right. Yeah. Well, com so Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, uh, she announced Wednesday that she tested positive. So did Democratic Representatives Adam Schiff, Joaquin Castro, mm -hmm. Attorney General Merrick Garland got COVID. So did oh. uh, Vice yeah. President Kamala Harris's comms director, Jamal Simmons. Jamal Simmons, number of former Hill. Uh, right. Number of yeah. reporters from outlets like PBS, Washington Post, the Associated Press, several other major newspapers come down with uh, COVID. And, and the interesting thing is obviously the White House Press uh, Correspondents Association dinner uh, coming up in like uh, two April or three weeks. 30th. So like three. So they're yeah, all going to get so it be, then. Well, that'll be three weeks, which as quickly as this thing moves. Yeah. It could it could be mostly gone. It would be kind of funny if they had to cancel it because, I mean, you would watch them still try to do it anyway because they've, it's, they've been it's missing the, that dinner. It's the most ridiculous thing. They should not do it at all. But uh, but D.C., lo the political class loves the uh, hanging out balls. with celebrities. And so they're there. So they would they would try to strong arm, like force that, to, like, like go through with it, even if everyone is like deathly ill with COVID. And it would be hilarious to see them to see them still doing it. You know, with all like the mask people behind the scenes, and like it would be, uh, it would be ridiculous. I think they're doing it. They're, they're, yeah, they're. Oh, they're going to do it. Yeah. They're, they're going to move forward with it. But yeah, Pelosi's not totally out of the woods. But you know, vaxxed, boosted with the, yeah. the mild, the you know, the milder strain that even even somebody to her uh, advanced experience on this planet uh, is you know in in good shape. How like old she is she? Has, what seventy nine? Let's. Let's no, she's in her up. 80s, I thought. Is she, I thought is she, she in her 80s? Good. Let's see. I don't know. I mean, I think she's, I mean, I could be wrong. Eight, yeah, 82. 82, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, they're definitely in the high-risk, uh, right. firmly in that high-risk category. If you're 82, you don't want it. But if, right. if you're vaccine boosted and it's this Omicron variant, yeah. that's your best shot. Like if she, yeah, just if, so people if, she, if she had gotten alpha, like that would have been, yeah. Quite, quite. Yeah. Well, and it showed, you know, we, and right. that's part of the reason why we did all the mitigation efforts right. that we were doing at the time. Now, sorry, everybody's going to get it. <laughs> okay, everybody's going to get it sooner or later. Yeah. Right. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe the year after. You might get it multiple times. It's just like it's going to happen. It's, it's unavoidable. Thankfully, it is not a death sentence. It's not even close nope. to a death sentence in the vast majority of cases for people who have taken, you know, whatever reasonable I mean, people, steps were appropriate to them but people are still very much dying of this so i, I you know i, I mm -hmm. even if right so you know it's important to for people to understand that this is you know it's still very deadly even if you are vaccinated if you're in a certain age category it's you know any it's tough it's really yeah. tough and for people of nancy pelosi's age the death rate for covid is like ebola i mean it's it's way high i mean for young people it isn't but the older you get it gets really high uh you know to 30 40 50 percent, you know, close to 50 percent, depending yeah. on, you know, when you're in your 90s. New York, New York Times lists 599 people dying yesterday, which is. Yeah. So it's still strikingly high. Number. I don't think the I don't think the death rate. Did you say the death rate is I don't think it's 50 percent. for No, people no. In yeah, 90s. I think she, you in know, the that 90s. Was, yeah, it's, getting, it's up there. 
No, no. I mean, it's once you get to 100. Okay, so when you're 99 years old, the death rate is 43%. The death that's, rate that's from the a sneeze. No, it's, no, I don't, I don't think... It is. I, it's 43%. I think it was like... I think even during... Um, even at the before we had the vaccines, alpha. I think it was like it was like ten ish percent. I think. But if you're over hundred, if, the Lancet, if the you're Lancet like over hundred, the yeah. death rate for the flu is like a death yeah. rate for waking it's, up in the morning. Is okay, high at that. if you're gonna average it out for people like seventy five to hundred, then yeah, when you average it out, it goes lower. But the Lancet actually put out data for every single age from zero, you know, infants all the way to 100 years old for every single age. And as you get older and older and older, the rate goes up and up and up. So well, yeah, somebody the rate, that's 75. The rate goes up. Yeah. I, I still thought right. it tapped out at like, I didn't think it no, got it, much it beyond 10. No, it goes up 10, to 40, 43% if you're up at, if you're 99 years old, it is 43%. So once you get into, you know, if you're 75, I believe it was like 95% chance of survival. But once you hit 99 or 100, the, the chance of survival is 57%. So it, that is the actual I mean, we can stat. Put the, we can put the link to the I don't think that's true the if Lancet. you're vac- I think the, if you're vaccinated yeah, if you're, and you're maybe not Maybe if you're right. vaccinated, it's different, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's but like it wears off. Less. So, I mean, you know, they got to be uh, right. But we can I, we can share the, let, let's, I'll get it for you and we'll put it up. And this is, this is developing news that we're getting, uh, by the way. And so it's just emerged that Pelosi was actually at the White House uh, yesterday, I guess, for that Affordable Care Act ceremony and in close contact uh, with President Biden. So, who has not uh, who has not gotten has, it yet, right? Not gotten it yet and is also born in right around the time of Pelosi. Mm-hmm. So, right. You know, he's what, 80 to um, also. But doesn't he just like hide in a basement? Although no, he, he was, was at but that no, he made, he was, but in, he was at this event. He was in close contact with Pelosi yesterday. Oh, right, right. And Pelosi. And he was like at that event know, with, with Pelosi, Obama. So Pelosi was probably contagious. Well, well, except nobody point. was talking to Biden from what I saw. I thought he was all, you know, I, know, I see a lot of people <laughs> breathing all over him right there. Get yeah, back true. up from the back up from the man. Give him some space. It's fine. It'll be <laughs> fine. It'll be fine. Oh, boy. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, three U.S. officials have admitted to NBC News that some claims made about Russia based on U.S. intelligence may be fabricated. They may have made them up to basically psych Putin out and put Russia and even China on notice. Watch this. They're also suggesting that Ukraine has biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's a clear sign he's considering using both of those. Can, can you explain to our viewers what was going on there and what NBC News has learned about that claim this week from three different U.S. officials? Yeah, that was a great example of what we're talking about. That was based on declassified intelligence. But we're also told the intelligence wasn't very clear about what exactly was going on. And they decided to, dis- to disclose it as a way of deterring uh, Russia from doing that and putting the world on notice that this could happen. And that's really, that's what's going on here, the big picture. This is an unprecedented use of declassified intelligence. We've never seen this level of information warfare before from the U.S. government. And what they're doing is they're trying to preempt the Russians 
get ahead of Russian disinformation, even mess with Vladimir Putin's brain, as one person put it, uh, leave him off balance to try to show that the United States knows what Russia is up to and is going to get ahead of it. Um, it's, It's really rather remarkable. Another example was when they announced that Russia had gone to China uh, to ask for help with what with getting some weapons that hasn't come to pass yet, and it was almost a way of putting China on notice. Hey, we know what's going on here. Don't let this happen. So, really interesting and unprecedented yeah. use of intelligence here, Alice. Yeah, and Ken, as you just said, not just intelligence here, unprecedented use. One U.S. official telling you it doesn't even have to be solid intelligence when we talk about it. It's more important to get out ahead of them, Putin specifically, before they do something. It's preventative. It doesn't even have to be solid intelligence when they tell us about it, they said. Shouldn't it, though? Shouldn't our government be giving us solid information instead of rumors or conjecture? They say they're fighting an information war against what? Misinformation? Well, who is the one spreading misinformation? But they did it to deter Russia and mess with Vladimir Putin's brain, they said. So it's okay. Well, maybe you could justify it because of the invasion. But what about China? They decided to bring them into it and put them on notice also, as if provoking one nuclear power wasn't enough. So they admit the narrative that Russia planned to use chemical weapons and that they were going to get weapons from China was not based on solid intelligence. But it doesn't have to be. They can say whatever they want, apparently. This is exactly why so many people don't believe the news or the intelligence community anymore. So much of what we see and hear ends up being manufactured propaganda in an attempt to manipulate. This type of propaganda doesn't just manipulate Putin, it manipulates the American people as well, probably even more so. Do you think Putin is falling for this? Don't you think he would know if it was a lie that he was planning to use chemical weapons or get help from China? He knows what's truthful about him and what isn't, but the American people don't. So I don't think this type of propaganda is intended to mess with Putin as much as it is to mess with us. When when people envision atrocities like chemical weapons being used on innocent men, women, and children, they're rightfully horrified. Sure, they say the goal is to put Putin on notice, but perhaps the real goal is to get us to feel so disgusted by another country's behavior that we begin to think war is the only option. Remember babies being thrown out of incubators and weapons of mass destruction? These were the lies used to march us into Iraq. But truthfully, it doesn't matter if we're the ones fighting the war or if it's someone else, so as long as we supply it. War is great for everyone except those fighting in it. It's great for politicians who see surges in approval ratings. They get to seem strong. It's obviously great for the military-industrial complex. They get to sell massive amounts of weapons. And it's great for the news business and the oil companies, even them. They're raking in record profits. All right, so you might be thinking, well, they're often wrong, but give them a break. It's a tough job trying to read other people's minds. And they did get the Russian invasion of Ukraine right. So maybe they're more inside of Putin's head than we give them credit for. But are they? Watch this. By saying to the world that U.S. intelligence shows that Russia is poised to invade, that, that was a big risk, because if they had been wrong, we would all be saying, oh, there's another case where U.S. intelligence blew it, you know, Dirac WMD, and now this. But they were right. And as a matter of fact, for example, France, the military intelligence agency there, they, did, they predicted that Russia would not invade. The head of that agency had to resign over that. So that was a great call, a risky call, though. 
a risky call. Oh, so they're gambling. They didn't actually know Russia was going to invade. It just looked like it. So they took the opportunity to claim they were. They got lucky. They were right. You have to be kidding me. But honestly, it makes perfect sense. Many of us did not believe Russia was going to invade because, as Ken Delanian stated, the French head of intelligence claimed it wasn't going to happen and ended up resigning over it. I don't see why when the German head of intelligence didn't think they would either. In fact, they were in Kiev at the time of the invasion and had to be evacuated. Even Zelensky himself didn't think the invasion was going to happen. He was making jokes about it on Facebook. The U.S. was the only intelligence agency to call it, but it turns out it wasn't because they knew. It was just typical American warmongering that happened to be right this time. Lucky guess. So my question is, when we hear reports like this, that the intelligence is flimsy, but that they report it as fact anyway, why is anyone surprised to find out American trust in the intelligence sector is dwindling? So this is just you know, another example of the intelligence agencies uh, fibbing or stretching the truth. And, and, and to be honest with you, and I don't know, Ryan, maybe you have more insight in on this, but is it the intelligence agency lying to us or, or or is it the administration, the officials, like they're getting information from the intelligence agency and then they decide to stretch it and put it out there to the public? Or do you think it's the actual intelligence sector? Well, what, what Delaney is describing there is so the, the way the process works, the, the intelligence community will brief the politicals right. and will say, Here's what we think, and we have low confidence, medium confidence, high confidence. They'll never say, except for the, the bozo who said slam dunk about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, they usually stay away from that terminology and will stick with like high confidence or very high confidence being the highest. Like, even, even if they're in the room, I have very high confidence that Robbie's sitting next to me. Like, <laughs> you can just say it. He's right, he's right there. And so in the past, then the politicals would just kind of sit on that. Intelligence and what Delanian is saying is that they're coming to them like with something that's low confidence, and the administration is then using it for its propaganda ends. Now, I suspect that you know some things they can know, like did Russia like send a fax to China requesting weapons? Like we have the NSA is extremely powerful and good at surveilling other governments. Like you know, it's a decent chance that they could pick something like that up. And, you know, did they get lucky on the invasion or did they actually intercept like the orders from Putin saying that, you know, we're going to we're going to do this invasion. And I, I think calling I, it risky is because at the last second it could be called off. Like you're, there's, right, a, right, there's right. always there's agency no that Putin had. He could have there, said, you know what, this no. is actually a bad idea. I'm not going to do this. They had nothing on that. There's no way they did, because if they did, they would have shared it with France and Germany. And they clearly did. and they would have shared it with Zelensky. And they didn't. They clearly so didn't think, because none of them it believed it was a, going to happen. You think Lucky they just guess. threw it threw a dartboard at the board and were like, we have a yeah, wild I, guess that in February of 2022, yeah. Russia is going to invade this particular country. Well, I think they saw the the mass uh, troops coming up to the border. So I think it was a pretty good guess, you know, to say, well, look at all the troops that are there, despite Russia saying, well, we're, we're conducting military exercises. Also, one thing, and I regret this, I didn't watch Putin and his own uh, press conferences. And if, if you watch those back in December and in January, reporters were pressing him and saying, are you going to invade? Can you rule out invading Ukraine? Just tell us you're not going to invade Ukraine. He actually never answered that question. He would not say no, he wasn't going to invade. So if you listen to him, then I think it's even a better guess to say, well, he's not saying no. You know, yeah, he's saying they're conducting military exercises. But then when you ask him, well, are you going to invade? He's, he's, uh, he switches 
and says something. He talks about something and, else. So and we I also think it was a lucky know, guess. Right. And, but we also know that he very rarely meets in person with people, which means that he's constantly relying on electronic communications to communicate with his, with his lieutenants, which every single one of those communications is an opportunity uh, for the U.S. to pick it up and read it. It so would have given that, it to so you, Germany and right. France, though. I mean, so, uh, you know, how do we explain the fact that French and German intelligence just were not in on it? I mean... Well, I think they, they and Zelensky may have had the same information, but were perhaps hoping that they could, if they didn't saber-rattle, that they could kind of get to a negotiation. I mean, the person in their briefing, here. who prepared their briefing for those authorities, might have just characterized the confidence right. differently, right? They might have all had the same information, but it just gets, you have other conflicting right. information, and it so happened to be that in the briefing we did, some of that, you know, whoever looked at it said, uh, yeah, that's not actually that convincing. Like, there's yeah. a subjective quality to this that it probably gets missed, And it's right? also hard to believe. You're like, it's 2022, and a, and a right. country's going to send tanks into another country? Yeah. Like, that's not going to happen, think that, even, in, uh, even if they're saying they're going to do it. You're like, no. Yeah, I mean... A broken really? clock is right twice a day, right? And the United States does this all the time. I mean, that is what our propaganda is, is constantly uh, looking at our enemies and, and warmongering and constantly making uh, accusations and statements about them. And I think just this time they got lucky. And that is what they're, they're talking about, these three U.S. intelligence officials telling NBC News that, yeah, you know, uh, even if it's low confidence, we still go out there and tell you about it. I mean, how is that not spreading misinformation? How is that not propagandizing the American people? Um, and, and then on top of it, you know, our intelligence sector is rarely right. So even if they did get this one right, that's... Well, um, I, I guess so. But prior to this invasion, if, you know, if you told me, well, our intelligence officials say Russia's going to invade Ukraine, I would have said, yeah, right. And now if like if our intelligence officials a year from now say uh, we think Russia might invade, you know, Georgia. invade Georgia, I would say I like I would take that more seriously. Right. You have to give well, credit sure. where it's due. But, right. Um, but now. But as he was mentioning, but since then, when they've said chemicals, uh, chemical weapons and getting weapons from China, they were making it up. It was B.S. And they just put it out there to make us think, oh, my gosh, we have to do something. The point is to get the American people to continue supporting warfare. That is ultimately the point of all of the warmongering that they do. Right. It's always to keep the military industrial complex afloat. And just to be clear for our YouTube monitors, like they're not, they're not saying they made it up. They're saying that they had low confidence in it. Right. They're not saying that they completely fabricated right. it out right. of nowhere. Like we don't actually know what, in, what right. intelligence they have about what Russia said to China or whatever. Got sure, and, right. Well, yeah, right. We and, getting no it out there, but, and getting it out there, like, like I see the point of saying to China, we know that you've been asked. Like, but if you don't, don't know, get, then don't. you're just making it up. That's misinformation. And now know. you're bringing like, in another nuclear power that, into we this. We don't know that they don't know. Like, I'm pretty confident that the U.S. surveillance, now ask Edward Snowden, like they are, they're everywhere. They're listening so, to everything. Right. So if they have not heard that, then they did make it up. Right. So because but, but they they've said heard. that this like, hasn't happened. But because they Delanian say that it hasn't say. happened. Delanian didn't. Well, what hasn't happened is that China hasn't given them that, that particular support that Russia was asking for. They might have been asked for it. Right. Were they asked for it? Maybe. Probably. Right? Why wouldn't Russia ask China? Uh, although <laughs> hey, I, think he's, I think Ken Delaney said specifically that, that they had intelligence that, China, that Russia was going to ask China for help, but that didn't come to pass. So I don't no, the, know if it was. The help didn't come to pass, is what he was saying. Uh, see, yeah, maybe it, yeah. We, that needs to be clarified a bit, but. Yeah. 
Well, tomorrow on Rising, author of the Vulgar Marxism newsletter, Matt Thomas, will join us to discuss how the New York State Assembly just passed a bill requiring government contractors to disclose their wage gaps. But the chamber's own finances reveal deep inequities. And journalist David Sirota breaks down how a big tech lobbying group is spending millions on TV ads claiming antitrust legislation to protect small business to protect small businesses would break Amazon Prime. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss one of our fabulous moments. Right? Don't <laughs> you never know when they're, You never know when Ryan's going to crack a joke, and that's what you don't <laughs> right. want to miss. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe. The, the Swiss Army, uh, the Swiss Army knife joke was a good one. A good one. <laughs> uh, also, be sure to check out our podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe and share to that as well, and rate it, review it, all that good stuff. Thank you guys so much for watching, and we will see you guys tomorrow. Bye bye. See you then.